The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, anteater nation. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And we have a very important show today. The show will be dealing with the war going on in Ukraine. My guest is UCI chemical and biomolecular engineering professor, Irina Zenyak. She grew up in Ukraine and still has family there. Her life abruptly changed on February 24, 2022, when Russia, after six months of military buildup, invaded her youth homeland. It is hard to believe some of the videos and photos coming from the war zone, which just a short time ago was a peaceful country. My hope is that this interview will help put some context to the whole situation at hand. And at the end of the interview, the professor will let us know how we can help. Thank you for being here today, Professor Zanyak. How are you doing? Hello, Kevin. Thank you for the opportunity to be here at this uh, show, at this podcast with UCI community. Uh, it's been it's been difficult two weeks uh, since February twenty fourth. I feel um, my life uh, has changed, and I think life of many people has changed. And we, I'm not sure if we will ever see the world again the way we saw it before this February Russian invasion in in Ukraine. And for me, it's personal, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm Ukrainian American. I lived in Ukraine first 15 years of my life. And now I lived here in US for 20 years. So I still have really close ties to Ukraine. I have family there. I have community diaspora here in New York. And I also got to know some wonderful Ukrainian people here in UC Irvine. So what year were you actually born? 1986. Okay. And where in Ukraine were you born? I was born in Western Ukraine in the city uh, called Ivano-Frankivsk, named after Ukrainian poet. And Ukraine was still part of Soviet Union back then. When did the Soviet Union collapse? I guess that was, what, 1991, the end of 1991? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in 91, uh, Soviet Union collapsed and uh, I was five years old at the time. Okay. We had now sovereign country, Ukraine. It's Independence Day is August 24th, 1991. And I remember the, that period of time because 
although uh, there was a lot of uh, obviously uh, positive emotions around having you know sovereign country but at the same time the economic crisis hit uh for example my grandfather used to stand in line to get milk you have tickets because uh you have tickets you can because of huge inflation you couldn't buy things with money anymore so you had to get coupons and he was people will wake up early at night to stand in line to get like butter and milk and things like that so economically it was a difficult time but i think it was like we all understood that there's something bigger is being formed and then we will have our own country and nation and i think there was also a lot of positive emotions around it oh wow at that time, Ukraine was a, a new young country. Was it friendly relations with the new Russia? You know, do all the people in Ukraine, do they speak Russian or what is the native language? It, it's it, This is a good question because if you think of Soviet Union, of course, we live in America and we uh, we had the Cold War here with, with Soviet Union. Uh, people who lived in Soviet Union, my mom's generation, for example, did benefit a lot from the socialism, from the social system. She had free education, she had a secure job, that she had network of people. There was equality, women, men, in STEM disciplines. So there were a lot of benefits, if you come to think of it, that her generation benefited. When it came to my generation, we saw the, the system collapse, we saw economic crisis. We did not see any benefits of, of this <laughs> socialism, let's say. So if you come to think of it, Ukraine had Russian population is minority. Most of Ukrainians do speak Russian. Russian was offered in schools. In Eastern Ukraine, um, many schools where uh, Russian was first language. In Western Ukraine, we are further away from Russian border. So you think of it, there is gradient, right? So <laughs> the closest you are to Russian border, the more Russian people there will be, the more Russian speaking people will be. So Western Ukraine has always been very unique. It's always been nationalistic. And if you think about um, what Ukraine is famous for outside of Ukrainian borders, like this embroidery, this um, uh, Easter eggs, um, the, there is this fine woodwork. Um, all of that is taking place in Western Ukraine. So whole Ukraine kind of adopted our local culture. And uh, if you think about, yes, relationship to Russia, where was it was it friendly? I would say that uh, it's it varied. I think um, Ivano-Frankivsk was specifically nationalistic town. I vividly remember being uh, maybe six year old, seven, in the trolley bus. A person spoke Russian to the conductor. The the, the trolley bus stopped, and and he was uh, the person was removed from the trolley bus for speaking Russian. And to me, that was a little bit sh shocking experience. I still remember it not really understanding what's happening and why would person not doing anything wrong speaking just russian language would be removed so i was really impacted by that yeah, what, and, what, mm -hmm. what year what year was that it was 92 93 and, 92, and, mm -hmm. and why just because they spoke russian and this is in the western ukraine right and so and, what was why did that happen well if if we come to think there is deep history roots of uh, Ukraine and Russia and Soviet Union, uh, everything goes back to World War II, even before that. Stalin's regime was awful for everybody in Soviet Union, Russians and Ukrainians. 
But specifically, if you come to think of it, 1932-1933, Ukraine went through what's called Holodomor, which is essentially millions of people died from starvation because of uh, Stalin's five-year plan. And if you think of it, a lot of, I mean, millions of Ukrainians did that because Ukraine was always breadbasket for Europe and for Russia. So we have really fertile ground. And when the country goes through such a horrible event, right, you have millions of people dying from starvation because of this centralized policy. It's very bad. There is, (laughs) but, but, Stalin's era, Stalin's era was so bad. And then if you think of it like the World, World War II, Western Ukraine had, for example, my grandmother, right? Uh, her father was killed by Russian Bolsheviks who came and, and she was in resistance. She, she was fighting both Germans and Russians. And so there were a lot of these evil acts that, that came from centralized government of Moscow that, uh, that people still remembered in 1990s so uh, people like my grandmother uh, her generation who went through world war ii and seen those awful horrible events happening um that was the driving force for this nationalism but on average i would say my generation my mother generation were very kind of warm and open to russian people i think it's it's the generation that went through world war ii that really had much more difficult relationships with russians gotcha so I hear what you're saying that, you know, the closer to Russia you are, the, the more likely you would speak Russian. On the Western side, is it Ukrainian? Is that the language that's spoken? Or? Yes, we have a Ukrainian language and we had it even before 91. So we, we've always had the language, tradition, the culture. So if you think about Ukrainian language is very similar to Russian, but it's different. It's, it's close. So we all speak Russian. We learn it either through school or through some other activities. Yes, if you come to think of Western Ukraine, it like the the city that I, I lived later in my life, Chernivtsi, was never part of Russia Empire. It was under Romania, Austro-Hungaria. A lot of Western Ukrainian towns were either under Austro-Hungaria or Poland or Romania. So were had really loose ties to Russia. It's more like the Eastern Ukraine that was always under Russian Empire and part of Soviet Union then. So so it's a little bit different history, right? So Right. Interesting. Yeah, I think most people, you know, in the United States have the impression that the whole of Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, but you've distinguished that for us. What was it, you know, like, you know, growing up? What would you like to do when you were a kid? Oh yeah, that's a really good question. I was um <laughs> I got to learn chess, chess game early on in my life and if you think of like Soviet Union was a big powerhouse in chess. Yeah. You had uh, you had series of old champions that all were Soviet Unions before before actually Bobby Fischer. Bobby <laughs> Fischer was the first and <laughs> amazing charismatic American world champion. Uh, I love his game. I, I love what he did to chess. It was it was amazing. What was it that you loved about his game? I, I think it was I was good in math and sciences and chess. It's really logical game. You have control. You once you become good, the competition. I mean, once you're like really good in chess, like you, you have to have some natural ability, right? So. 
for me, I had that natural ability and I became good fast. So I like, I love to win, right? And as a child, you beat all these boys in chess. It's highly rewarding. <laughs> it was hard to beat them in anything else. So, yeah, <laughs> so chess yeah. was perfect. How old were you when you started? I started at age of five, but it's interesting because, you know, the, the culture is there, right? So you have free chess lessons, free chess clubs, everybody, whole nation plays chess. So it, it was very natural. And what's interesting, if you think of Soviet Union, even that 91, nobody traveled because uh, it, it was impossible to travel to foreign countries. You had to be there really athlete or sportsman or some somebody like dignitary to do that. So that's why like chess was one of the opportunities to go somewhere. And for me, even all my classmates never left Western Ukraine, right? So it was, it was interesting because when I was seven, I went first time my big tournament, I won local tournament to qualify for nationals. And I went to Luhansk. So you might know that Luhansk was one of the areas that is, was occupied by Russia in 2014. Actually, this is the area that Russia invaded. Is, it Crimea, is this the Crimea? Uh, so it's 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 Donbass in that Donbass area. So a Russian invaded Crimea and put separatists in Donbass area. So if you think about Ukraine, if you think about horizontal path, so Lviv is on the left hand side, is one of the most left uh, western uh -huh. cities, uh -huh. and yes. Luhansk is one of the most eastern cities. Okay. So. So if you think of how far as bird flies, it's around 900 miles. So it's around like if you drive from U from UCI to San Francisco and back. But in Ukraine, think about it like the roads are not great. The railroads, that's how you move around. Mm -hmm. And all the railroads go through Kiev, which mm -hmm. is capital, right? So Kiev mm -hmm. is like the centralized location. You have to travel through Kiev. So that adds another, I don't know how many miles, few hundred miles. And, you know, I remember arriving there in February and think about like February in this industrial, very cold town, Luhansk, which is now, of course, is, is occupied by Russians and destroyed. And uh, who knows what happens there. But back then it was, you know, I arrived there. I remember I felt it was Ukraine. I never been to that far east. Uh, people spoke both Russian and Ukrainian. I don't remember being, you know, being seven year old, you would you would feel the difference if there was something that was not so Ukrainian. I remember I never crossed my mind that this is not Ukraine. So it's mm -hmm. it's been I remember that vividly that trip. Uh, it was very cold. Uh, it was very uh, harsh winter, but but I loved it because it, I got to see the part of Ukraine that my classmates never seen. And that was fantastic. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor, while I update our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI engineering professor Irina Zenyak. She was born and raised in Ukraine, and we're getting to know her and learning about her homeland and the crisis that's going on from her perspective. And right now, she's talking about when she was seven years old and she became a chess champion. How did you do in that tournament that was in eastern Ukraine? Oh, well, I was maybe I was in somewhere top 20 or maybe something like that. There was yeah. maybe 50 participants, but it was my first big event. So it was very good result for that. Yeah. But let me tell you something that my next tournament, you would never guess where I went for my next big tournament. Maybe now you can't guess, right? <laughs> you, you already called it Crimea. Um, and Crimea has been always very unique 
for Ukraine. It was it was kind of gifted to Ukraine um, uh, by by Soviet Union. Uh, it was autonomous republic. So if you come to think of it, it was kind of always had its autonomy. But it's unusual because climate of Crimea is very much similar to what we have here at UC Irvine. We have palm trees, it's very warm, beautiful pebble and beaches and like uh, uh, tropical fruits and warm throughout the year because of that unique location of the stream of the Black Sea. Mm -hmm. So uh, I could not imagine that we have a, such a place in Ukraine. When I was eight years old, I went there and it was incredible experience because I tell people that's how I fell in love with California, going through Crimea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so Ukraine is so diverse. If you come to think like climate-wise, we went from like February in the coldest place, Luhansk and, and Crimea, which is like California. And Western Ukraine is, is very similar to a lot of European countries. Uh, countries and very similar in climate. Wow. So, you know, as you were growing up, you know, did chess continue um, to be a big part of your life? Right. So chess, I mean, it was very big part of my life until I retired, like maybe five, six years ago. It's one of the reasons, actually, I ended up in America. I want to give you a little bit background of my family. My father was petroleum engineer. So I grew up in a family that was very energy focused. My father was flying to Siberia to inspect those oil rigs um, and really, really very well paid job back then. So energy was always important for Ukraine. We always worked with Russian energy. Ukraine had, uh, you know, still has gas pipelines going through and we Ukraine obviously uh, does depend on Russian gas for heating. So when you grow up in Ukraine in winter, the common topic would be gas prices because for heating, that's what we use, right? And uh, like just normal common people would always be worried what, what is with the prices, what Russia will sell us for and things like gas for and things like that. Uh, so my father died uh, when I was eight year old, and this is, was a large source of our income. If you think of it, the petroleum job, right, pays well. And my mom was a musician at the time, and, and I had a brother, and she was thinking, you know, this is collapsed, Soviet Union, economy suppressed, inflation, what to do? And she thought, okay, there was opportunity already to come to America for some of Ukrainians, and she, she took that chance. She took the chance coming here alone and my brother and me were staying behind. She wanted to come here for a year or two, but uh, it ended up being six years until we rejoined her. And one of her motivations for coming here was also to, to make some to make some money to sponsor some of my events, to go to Europe, to play some bigger tournaments, because at a time I could only play uh, on in the in the Ukrainian events, there was no sponsorship for me to go abroad. So that was her motivation, and that's what I look back and I think you know, chess was always big part and uh, and big motivator for my family too. So, yes, kind of to answer your question. Yeah. So, um, you know, th this uh, you know over the pandemic, a lot of people watched that TV show, uh, The Queen's Gambit, and it seems like the sponsorship thing. It was a big part of your life. Yeah, Beth Harmon there in, in Queen's Gambit, she was amazing. That show was so nicely done and it was so positive. The message was such a positive message about chess. 
And it, you know, they make it look like it's really easy, like it's she wins every game. It's <laughs> you lose thousands of games all the time before you win something good. But overall the the message was super positive and 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 actually a lot of events, a lot of descriptions are very very correct, very true that sponsorship matters, support network of friends and people who support you during tournament, that's also very important having the right coaches and the right team to prepare you. All of that was 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 all very well portrayed. And I have a lot of friends who were challenging me after that movie. They saw the movie, started playing chess, they randomly called me, can you play a game with me? I was like, this is, <laughs> this gets <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> so um, I, I enjoyed it very much. When you look back, was there a favorite tournament that you played? Well, uh, you know, uh, I came to America at age 15. So I lived in New York City in Ukrainian diaspora when I arrived here. And if you come to think of it, like New York has a rich history of chess. That's where Bobby Fischer played, right? Mm -hmm. So Marshall Chess Club, uh, Bobby Fischer played there, historic chess club named after Frank Marshall, which is a famous American chess champion. Mm -hmm. And that was like 20 minute walk from my home. And I played tournaments every week for a few days. And then I qualified for US championship when I was 18. So I played 10 US championships. I was on US national team. I represented US on the world under 18 uh, championship in Greece. So I had a very rich career and I'm very grateful uh, to have that, to meet so many wonderful people, to play this uh, wonderful events and uh, to, to enrich myself with just, uh, you know, this logical thinking and competition and all of that and it's it's always been going to be a big part of me but in the end uh, energy energy sustainability that was my always bigger passion i would say got you so you came to the united states when you were 15 did you always know that you would go to university here in the united states right yes well you know it's it's interesting because the united states i came to it was I came night before 9-11, so uh, I came on the September the, 10th. Oh, my um, God. Uh, I arrived. In New York City? New York City. I haven't seen my mother for six years. That was first shock to see her and be like, okay, she looks different, but it's still my mother. Yeah. Then we would take cab to go from JFK to Manhattan. And as we crossing the bridge, she showed me the skyline and she showed me the Twin Towers. And I vividly oh. remember because they were so much taller than anything else in Manhattan, right? Right, right. And I thought to myself, well, I'll <laughs> still have so many chances to see them. I was so tired. Right, right. Next day, wake up and we, that was when 9-11 happened, when the terrorist attack, and we were on the 6th Street, 1st Avenue in Manhattan, and that was... It was pretty awful because so um, how far how far is that it's, from... a, it's probably a mile or two it's very oh my close. god you oh it, my gosh we went to the streets and and there were people uh dusted people coming out from downtown going uptown manhattan no cars were were driving it was it was a horrible day in my life and i feel like it took me a while to process it and the america i saw was this post 9 11 which was which was actually, I mean, I saw New York stand together and people united and firefighters, heroes and, and police and man heroes. And I thought, what a wonderful place in terms of like how, how people are united, right? But at the same time, it was terrifying to right. go through that. And of course, that kind of shaped also my life. You think of it like 
go, going through such a going through living through that and i know many millions of Ameri americans lost their families there and it was probably it was so difficult for for others if you think of just going back to your question I come from family of yeah engineer and musician, so my mom always wanted me and my brother to go to college. And because I I was valedictorian in my high school, I got fellowship to mostly almost like seventy five percent of tuition to Brooklyn Polytechnic, which was a private school uh, in Brooklyn, which now is uh, New York University. So very very focused kind of engineering school that has tradition of European polytechnics. So very focused on engineering, yeah. And did you know that you would go to graduate school after? Um, I took a gap year to play chess to to actually oh. think. Oh, so you were yeah. still doing that? I, I was playing chess throughout my college years and up until my professorship at Tufts. So yeah, I took a gap year. I played a lot of tournaments. I taught chess. That's how I made a living. And, and I applied to graduate schools and um, I got into Carnegie Mellon and I, that was my top choice because the professor I applied to was doing fuel cells, green hydrogen. And that was the topic that actually I wanted to do because if you think of it, I went to, in my gap year, I was representing United States on first world mine games, which happened after Beijing Olympic games. And that was in 2008. So I was there. And I saw all the air pollution and, you know, in, in Beijing at a time and smoke. And I thought, okay, we have to do something about this. Uh, and yeah. not just in China, but in US also air pollution was quite bad. And, and that's where I read also Hot, Flat and Crowded by Tom Friedman. At the time, I was already reading a lot of op-eds from New York Times. And to me, energy became like really, really big issue I wanted to address at the time. So so hence PhD program in, in energy and in fuel cell specifically, which is clean energy technologies. Gotcha. So, you know, when you took that gap year, if things had gone well in the chess world competitively, would you have stayed with it or like, no, no, the, your plan was just to do it for you? Well, uh, I was professionally playing chess for years, so I wasn't doing anything else but chess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I did well. I did very well. I had a lot of good results. I got uh, in uh, norms. Uh, I got. I played in Russia tournament in in China. In event very well. It was just, you know, you had to become professional, and that that means like very different lifestyle i was not ready to quit my academic pursuits i mm -hmm. think that was what happened and and phd program was allowing me to continue playing chess weekends tournaments uh, take lessons morning or evening and and pursue energy so i needed more time to make decision i was not ready yet gotcha gotcha wow wow so you graduate with your phd and then do you go right away to Tufts University? Yeah, so I graduated yeah, from PhD and, and I got the postdoctorate fellow at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in Berkeley. And that's one of the most prestigious uh, kind of uh, places to be if you want to study energy. It has a long history of energy research. And I went there uh, while interviewing at Tufts for professor's position and I got Tufts 
professor's position, postponed it for a year, did my postdoc at Berkeley and went to be a professor at Tufts University in Boston, which was good experience because I learned like it was more teaching focused school. So I focused a lot on like developing materials, teaching, engineering and things like that, and also becoming a successful researcher. But eventually I wanted to to focus more on, on research and to be in a place where I really cared about energy and energy transition towards renewable energy, and that's California. And that's UC Irvine. UC Irvine has been famous in hydrogen world. We have a National Fuel Cell Research Center, which is 20-year-old center. And so when they were hiring associate director for that center, I applied and I really interviewed very well and I got the job. So I came here in 2018. Uh, so I've been here three and a half years and um, it's been a wonderful experience to have so many colleagues who care so deeply about energy and renewable energy and decarbonization. Just briefly, how is our progress going in that area? Very good, actually, if you think of it, uh, very good until maybe two weeks ago. So <laughs> let's say before, before world changed, I'll talk to you about before February 24th. California is a leader in renewable energy. Governor Newsom and others committed to actually getting rid of internal combustion engine sales by 2035. So all the cars we'll see will be electric or fuel or hydrogen cars. If you look at the grid, we are uh, kind of uh, phasing off Diablo nuclear plant. We still have natural gas power plants. We don't have coal, which is great. So we just have natural gas, which will will be phasing off at some point. So uh what is going to be substituted with well with most likely with hydrogen so instead of burning natural gas which emits co2 you can either burn or transform hydrogen which does not emit co2 so if you think of it installation of solar and wind sometimes we run grid on 90 percent renewables that's amazing that's incredible no other state has what we have so we are leader in the united states in the united states want to fully decarbonize by 2050 right? 2050 fully decarbonize all the sectors, industrial, transportation, and uh, all, all the other grid. And if you think about, uh, we can decarbonize transportation fairly easily by using electric cars or fuel cell cars. It's more difficult to decarbonize industrial sectors. Think about large processes like Haber-Bosch process that makes ammonia or uh, steam methane process that makes hydrogen. Those are the ones that we need to really focus and, and put energy to find ways to decarbonize. What is the Advanced Power and Energy Program? Advanced Energy and Power Program, so I'm part of that. It's a, its acronym is APEP. It's a program that houses several centers. And National Fuel Cell Research Center, where I'm Associate Director, is part of this program. So it also has combustion center. It also has storage. Uh, storage center. It also has uh, Horiba Institute for Mobility Connectivity. It's this umbrella organization that lets all the centers to kind of do energy to talk to each other. Just excuse me one more time, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. And my guest is UCI engineering professor Irina Zenyuk, who is sharing about her work, her love, and her homeland of Ukraine. She still has family that is there, 
and we're going to get into the crisis that's been unfolding over the last several weeks. Professor, when you first came to UCI in 2018, back in your homeland of Ukraine, did it seem like a stable time? President Zelensky came, what, in 2019. What was your feeling about Ukraine? So Russian took over Crimea and parts of Donbass in 2014, I believe, and that kind of was already uh, destabilized Ukrainian, um, Ukraine-Russian situation. And so we were worried, we were worried that this uh, expansionist uh, policy will continue on behalf of Russia, but, but we never, you know, we never thought there will be war because if you think of it, even all my relatives, none of them moved from Kharkiv weeks before the war because nobody saw this coming from at least from people inside the Ukraine. Because if you think of Ukrainians and Russians, we have a lot of families and relatives in Russia, Russians have in Ukraine. So it's a really brotherly nations. And of course, it's one thing to kind of occupy territories like in Donbass and have separatists. And then another thing is to have open fledged war. And it's it's devastating and yeah we didn't see it's coming back then when russia took over crimea it seemed like it was relatively fast right i mean what what was different about that was it just the the size of the russian army was so big that it, it was able to do that but you know ukraine is a much bigger area is it? right so uh if you think of it ukrainians didn't have a strong army back then in 2014 it's the president right after that occupation ukraine started building its army and its military reserves and things like that but back then it they managed to take it over because it was it was rapid it was unexpected uh, unexpected advance so nobody was ready nobody was uh, was ready to defend it and if you think of it crimea was always kind of more independent it was autonomous republic mm. so we, we it was part of ukraine but we were never as attached to it i would say as mainland mm. ukraine Gotcha. What are the circumstances that President Zelensky is uh, elected? It's a little bit of a joke, right? It's like, oh, the Ukrainians have elected a comedian as their president. Well, yeah, it is a joke in a sense, but uh, it's just Ukraine suffered through so much of corruption, of government corruption, that we had the previous president, who was Yanukovych, who was just pro-Russian, and you, and then Poroshenko, who who is this millionaire, he he makes candies, you know, he has all these factories making candies. And when Ukrainians elect Poroshenko, they thought because he's already so rich that there will be lower risk for him being corrupt. But the corruption levels just increased when he was in power, and that was devastating for the country. And when, when Zelensky was elected, I think people just wanted somebody who maybe will be less corrupt, maybe less experienced as politician, but maybe who will just be more honest of a person, you know? And I think that's what happened. That's what Zelensky turned out to be. He, I think he learned the political game fast enough. Mm. He, uh, he had all the public speaking. And, and if you look at him now, he's, he's national hero. He is yeah. there. He did not leave Ukraine. He's a there world, a world and, hero. He was world's hero. He's compared to Winston Churchill. His rhetoric is so powerful. Just him saying, I'm here. I'm in Kyiv. My my cabinet is here. It's just repeating these words makes everybody just calm down and can can kind of breathe in. And I listen to his, uh, you know, messages every day. It's yeah. it's been my routine for the last two weeks. Wow, fantastic. 
when Russia did that buildup mm -hmm. in Belarus and, and Russia, did you think the same as most people that it was just, you know, rattling swords? You, you didn't really think you know, maybe they were going to try to get some political concessions, but I didn't really think that they would invade. We didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming. Um, no, we didn't. We thought it was just bullying, intimidation, the usual. And nothing happens in 2014, if you think of it. So it's surprise. It's it's surprising. This war yeah. is surprising. Yeah. I mean, it's just brutal. I mean, I, I, I'm it, so sorry. It is. It is. And if you think of it, like I have family in both Western Ukraine, Eastern Ukraine and Kharkiv. If you think about Kharkiv, Kharkiv is the second largest city in Ukraine. And it's um, to the east of Kiev. It's on, close to the border. My mom's sister, aunt, and her her children, their families live there. Mm -hmm. So my cousin, she's been in the basement for the last two weeks of, of the house. They, they had shelling five hours per day. They have electricity maybe on generator three hours per day. No heating. It's very cold there. So it's it's awful. And they're in shock and they are... They don't know what to do. If you think, if I ask her, why wouldn't you, let's just, you know, go to Western Ukraine, it's safer. And she's skeptical. She said, is it safer there? Maybe today, but what do we know about tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And that's, again, that's also the question. We all think that Western Ukraine is safer now, but but it's not, it might not be. So it's, um, it, it's, it's unpredictable, I would say. And, and devastations and civil life loss. And if you think of, if you've seen the hospitals that being built, bombed the schools, the civilians, it's everything is reported. Everything is photographed. That's what like, that's why this war is also reaching out to so many people in so many countries, because it's on Twitter, it's on Instagram, it's on Facebook. You can see the casualties. You can see the atrocities of war, war crimes that Russians are committing against Ukraine. It's documented. So I feel like, the whole world is watching this this war and war of annihilation of Ukrainian people. And I know Ukrainians got a lot of help, a lot of help, but um, obviously it's not treated as, it's not in NATO. So it's not treated as one of the NATO countries. So it's uh, it still fights on its own in the sense we they, Ukraine doesn't get any military troop help from any of the NATO countries because of the fear of nuclear war. And I understand that argument. But at the moment, it also seems like if we sacrifice Ukrainian nation and then maybe Russia will not stop there and maybe we'll still see the prospects of nuclear war. So it's it's terrifying situation from from many angles. Yes. Are you in daily contact with your relatives over there? Yes, I am. I call my relatives every day. I read. Uh, there is the channels you can read updates every minute, every Five minutes, somebody posts warnings and posts what, what happens in which town. So I follow those. There are around 200 messages per day from that. It's, it's very emotionally tolling, but at the same time, I'm here. I cannot go there. At this point, it will be pointless for me to join their forces because I can be more useful here in America. And that's why at UC Irvine, I feel like what we can do as scientists, as, as community, we can support some of the refugee scientists or refugee artists or journalists that come from Ukraine. And currently there are more than 2 million refugees, right? That left Ukraine in this, this little bit more than two weeks. 
Most of them are in Europe, but we'll see them in America as well. And so I, what I did, I work with Scholars at Risk, which is international program. Scholars at Risk uh, kind of uh, uh, take applications and, and matches these refugees with places that have funding to support them. So I opened this ZOT funder on behalf of UC Irvine. It's, it's officially approved by UCI to support some of the Ukrainian scholars who will come here, support their like salary and health insurance. They will place in the laboratories of, of other faculty, whatever their research is most closer to. So if you go to ZOT funder, and you will see there is Ukrainian uh, scholars at risk uh, funders. So that's kind of, that's very helpful. A lot of people came up and donated, and this is, uh, this will help our Ukrainian scientists to, to get by at least for a few years until they'll be able to get back to the labs. Because look at the, what happened there, Kyiv and Kharkiv are all bombed. That's where most of the universities are. That's where you have the most famous universities. If you think of Ukraine, it's very famous in STEM disciplines. It makes the largest airplane, Antonov. Now this university is either erased, bombed, there's no facilities to come back to. So we need to think how can we support the, the scientists from there. And just to be clear, if somebody goes online, would they get there if they put in their browser ZotFunder, Z-O-T-F-U-N-D-E-R? Yeah, so, so ZotFunder.give dot uci dot edu so zotfunder dot give give oh give giving, give zotfunder dot give dot uci dot edu very good thank you so and, much sure the and the initial goal is to raise uh one hundred thousand dollars it looks like so far it's at about the fifteen thousand dollar mark so everybody out there in anteater nation please please donate Thank you. Thank you. And we have matching funds from UCI Office of Vice Provost, and we were waiting for some other matching funds from UCI government so uh, organization. So we will have, this is just uh, yeah, crowdsourcing, that's 100,000, but we'll have matching funds from other gotcha. places. Great. And now, will is this also UC-wide, so at all the UC campuses? Yeah, so ideally, this one, I initiated this at UC Irvine. Jane Newman, a faculty, she's in, in humanities and comparative literature. She did this for Afghani refugees, and she and her counterparts in all the UCs actually did this for Afghani scholars, and they're still very busy with that. So now uh, we are a little bit ahead of the game, UCI, because we, we always had the leadership through the Jen Newman and our uh, support of, of Promote Konganiker and, and Hal Stern for these programs, but other UCs will, will have similar crowdsourcing campaigns and will, because then, then it will make a difference. If we can host four, four or five families here and four or five in all the other campuses, that will make, make a big difference. Wow. And that, that would be to bring scholar families to UCI? Yeah, so there will be a scholar who done doing research in some area, whether it was a faculty, a postdoctorate fellow, or research scientist, and of course uh, this this funds will support uh, their health insurance and salary, and of course we will uh, help their families to get here as well. Yeah, very good. Do you have any sense of of how long the, the resistance can last? Is that, is is it just impossible to tell? The world seems to be. Uh, amazed at at the strength of the Ukrainians resisting this assault. 
Ukrainians have been always fighting for their independence. It's in our souls. It's in, it's, it's how we were brought up and they will never cease fighting. If Ukraine is to be occupied by Russians, there will be bloodshed for, for as long as the occupation will last because Ukrainians will not stop fighting. That's not going to happen. So those who left will leave, but those who stay, they will fight. Mm. Good to hear. Professor, is there anything that we've left out or anything, any area that, you know, we might just hit at the very end here? Or I think we, we covered pretty good ground, Kevin. Okay. Uh, I think it's it's been wonderful to, to talk to you and to like, you know, talking through crystallize some of these thoughts in my head too. So it's always, it's always good. And, you know, I, I've been here at UC Irvine three and a half years, but like the community here is wonderful. I've got so many supporting messages from my colleagues here, from friends, from students, from administration, checking on me, how are you doing? There are many Ukrainian Americans here on campus. And, and just if you know any Ukrainian American, reach out to them, just say, hey, how are you? And this will mean a lot to them. Well, thank you very much for taking the time, Professor. I know you have a lot on your plate, so we really appreciate it. We'll get the word out as much as we can. Thank you, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. There you have it, from a fellow anteater who grew up in Ukraine and still has family there. This is her birth country's time of need. Thank you to chemical and biomolecular engineering professor Irina Zanyuk for taking us on her amazing personal journey. As she works to help save our environment with fuel cell research, let's lean in and help save her birth country. Please donate and get the word out about her crowdfunding website at www.zotfunder.give.uci.edu. We have all been astounded by how Ukrainian President Zelensky and his fellow citizens have inspired the world with their bravery. Please help, help, help. Again, www.zotfunder.give.uci.edu. Thank you, Anteater Nation. And now coming up next at the top of the hour is Oswaldo Diaz leading his public affairs show on mindfulness with a Hispanic flair spoken in Espanol. Mucho gusto. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, wishing you a pleasant good evening, happy trails, and go Ukraine! And now my show theme song with piano blues master Fred Kaplan doing it on the keyboards, signifying. <laughs>